Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we learn about Avel de Knight, the 20th century Caribbean-American artist whose work helped to inspire an incredible new era of visual art from Black artists in the United States and abroad. Welcome back for a second season of the Style Free Podcast. Really excited to get another season rolling with you, Dad. It's great to be back with you, Papa, as always. Awesome. So I, I remember that in one of our episodes in season one, we had discussed the Fifth Dimension and their musical director, Renee DeKnight. And in that conversation, we also had brought up uh, Renee's brother, Avel. And it was really intriguing to me because uh, I know Avel and the DeKnight family uh, are, you know, extended family to us. But uh, it was really intriguing because I don't think a lot of people really know about the legacy of Avel DeKnight, his importance as an African-American modern artist, and then the legacy that he has left not here just in the United States, but then also in Paris, France, and other countries abroad too. Um, so I know that you have a lot of personal and professional connection and investment to the legacy and estate of Avel DeKnight. Uh, so I was just curious for just myself, but then also for our listeners to really kind of pick your brain about, you know, who Avel DeKnight is, you know, who is this artist and giving us an opportunity to get to know him a bit better. Well, thanks for uh, asking the question. Avel DeKnight was a really incredible 20th century visual artist. Avel was born in 1923 in New York City. He came from a family of Caribbean immigrants. His mother came from Puerto Rico. His father came from Barbados. Uh, his mother's roots actually extend further back in terms of uh, her father, uh, who came from St. Thomas, the island of St. Thomas. Hmm. And his parents married in 1911 in New York. And shortly after that, they started a family of four children, uh, the oldest being Dolorita. Next was Rene, whose real name was Edgar. Then came Francis, and in 1923 was Avel. Avel came on the scene. Initially, they all lived down on 63rd Street, what's known as the Phipps Houses, which was housing, affordable housing uh, for those of modest means. And shortly after that, they eventually moved to Harlem on 111th Street, which incidentally uh, is where my mother, your grandmother, and your grandfather first met in the same building or on in the, the same, same block? building oh that's crazy <laughs> that's crazy yeah and so your grandparents paternal grandparents met when they were just little little tiny kids so abel grew up in this in this household and many of the members of the family were uh, talented in various ways in the arts Dollarita was interested in fashion. Edgar or Rene was interested in music, in piano. Mm -hmm. And Francis was interested in dance. Mm -hmm. And Avel, from the time he was a little child, loved to do art. His mother was a seamstress, and so she would have little pieces of fabric that would fall to the ground. And he would collect them and start arranging them. It was mm -hmm. like creating a collage. Yeah. 
So being around this creative milieu was um, very inspirational to him. And as the years went on, he got a little bit older, your grandmother, your paternal grandmother, Tony, came to join the family. And that's when she got to know Avel. They were first cousins. Mm -hmm. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing. See, Avel's mother was Antipas. Mm -hmm. But Antipas' sister was Serafina. Mm -hmm. But they, I believe, were the aunts of Grandma Tony. Mm -hmm. But exactly where that line is. It gets a little gray. It gets, it gets gray. It's yeah. majorly gray. You know, so I can't really talk about those those details. Um, so anyway, to keep it simple, eventually your grandmother, Tony, came to live with the Danaid family. And that's where she and Avel, being closer in age than the other of Avel's siblings, spent a lot of time together. Mm -hmm. uh, and they would go to St. Nicholas Terrace. They would go near City College in New York City. Uh, and they would um, go for walks, talk, photograph each other. Uh, and in those days, everyone dressed up, everyone looked, no matter, you know, you may have not had a lot of money coming from a family of modest means. Uh, and yet everyone was always impeccably dressed. You dressed to impress. Mm -hmm. And that, that was the way it was. And so uh, Avel has always been a fashion plate. In fact, one of the things that inspired me uh, growing up was the way that your grandmother would dress and put herself together. You know, her silver, her turquoise. Yeah. Uh, all of these things uh, fascinated me and influenced the way I think about color and arrangement. Mm -hmm. And so Avel uh, came from that, from that milieu. Now, his father came from Bridgetown, Barbados, as I mentioned. And he was a shipping clerk in downtown Manhattan at a place called Arthur Brown and Sons. Mm -hmm. So whenever supplies would come in, he would check those off and... Uh, make sure things got where they needed to be. But he would also bring home supplies for this budding young artist named Avel. So as the years went on, Avel, going into high school, attended Benjamin Franklin High School in East Harlem, just off the Harlem River Drive. Mm -hmm. And he was, as he said, one of the top three in his art class. And he eventually became the president of the art club. Oh, wow. So everyone looked toward Avel. And he had the idea of becoming a commercial artist. Mm -hmm. So he attended Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. And then the Second World War intervened and he so, was drafted. So when you say like a commercial artist, do you mean like somebody who's getting commissioned to do paintings for different businesses? Or do you mean like he's painting walls of a business? By that, I mean that he would be hired to do illustrations for mm -hmm. different types of advertising campaigns. Ah, cool. Yeah. And I have some examples of some of the work that he was doing in, in Pratt and in high school that were commercially oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, designs for record covers uh, and the like. Mm -hmm. So this is, was his trajectory. And then when the Second World War came, he was drafted into the army and wound up serving in France. Now, his sister, Frances, told me that when he was a little boy, that she used to read him a story about a French uh, girl named Colette, mm -hmm. and that there was a French bakery not far from where they lived in Harlem. 
And so they would go and they would pick up baguettes and things of this nature. <laughs> and uh, so that French uh, component was always there. Of course, Spanish was spoken in the family because his mother was Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, French became in his DNA. I mean, he just he just absorbed everything about French culture. Mm -hmm. And when he was in France, he decided that after the war, he would go back on the GI Bill of Rights and study in France. And, and that's essentially what he did. Over a 10-year period between 1946 and 1956, he studied at three institutes, the Academy de la Grande Jomère, the Academy Julien, and the École des Beaux-Arts. Wow. Were there Black artists, you know, being kind of accepted into these types of art schools at that time pretty consistently, or was he kind of an anomaly in that? That's a great question. I know there were a number of GIs, uh, and they were very intrepid. The idea of going and living in a foreign country with a language that was not your native tongue took a lot of, lack of a better term, chutzpah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he, along with other African-American artists, uh, studied there. Uh, he was not the only one. He had a room at the Cité Universitaire which is where many students from different countries would go and they would study uh, there in France. And one of the people that was his roommate was a gentleman by the name of Hugh Marius. And Hugh and Abel were very close. Uh, Hugh was going into the area of law. And there was also another artist that he met there at the Cité Universitaire, which was Herb Gentry. Mm. And Herb Gentry was a very, very important African-American uh, expressionist artist. Uh, and when I first met Herb, Avel and I were attending a lecture by Romare Bearden at the National Academy of Design. And the lecture was basically about the relationship between collage, jazz, and the history of art. Wow. And afterwards, Romare and Herb was standing side by side. And so Avel and Romare had known each other and had worked together and art shows in the past. And Romare really respected Avel as an artist. And as I say, they were, they were friends. Mm -hmm. And I was asking Romare about the kind of glue that he used in his collages. Yeah. And he said, well, it's, um, uh, it's a product that was produced by the Navy called Duco. And I said, oh, and I, you know, I made a note of that. And Romare and I had met earlier uh, that's another story for another time, perhaps, <laughs> but on several occasions. And I had brought my students to meet Romare at Bronx Community College, mm -hmm. along with Ozzie Davis and, and other individuals who are on a panel, Felipe Luciano and June wow. Jordan and others. Yeah. I always wanted to give, uh, expose my students there in the Bronx to experiences that they would probably otherwise not experience to meet people mm -hmm. and to see other possibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think that Romare had the same spirit because he was always very supportive. I talked to him on the phone shortly before he died. He had been uh, released from the hospital. He was suffering from bone cancer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this at the time. In fact, on the day that he died, I was working on a collage uh, in the kitchen in Johnstown, where we mm -hmm. were living at the time. It's a piece called Forest Walk. Oh, I remember and, that. I know that piece. 
yes, I was working on that particular piece, which in part has the inspiration of not only Romare Bearden, but also Aaron Douglas. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was subsequently purchased by Twitty Styles, who just recently passed away. Wow, yeah. Another important figure in his own right. But at any rate, what was I saying about Romare and uh, saying something about, there's a reason I was bringing, oh, so then Romare at that point turned to Herb Gentry and he said, Herb, I want you to meet uh, Avel's cousin. This is Stephen Tyson. And I said, Herb is very, I said, no, I said, Mr. Gentry, it's a pleasure to meet you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he was very warm, very gracious. We shook hands. Little did I know that a number of years later that he and I would be spending more time together. I would be interviewing him and talking about his life. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, ha- I have that videotape. And so that's when I first met uh, Herb. And, and I didn't know at the time that Herb and Avel had known each other at the Cité Universitaire. Yeah. Right. So all of these amazing artists together, Avel was connected to the world of art. Mm-hmm. Uh, people knew Avel. They admired him as a, his, his draftsmanship. And um, another important figure that Avel met when he was in Paris was a gentleman by the name of Ellsworth Kelly. Hmm. Ellsworth Kelly became one of the pioneering non-objective uh, artist, visual artist of the 20th century, sort of a minimalist hearted style. And some of his work also was inspired by the concept of chance. Hmm. This is something that was explored by people like and friend of his by the name of John Cage, based on the book of changes, the I Ching. Mm-hmm. And so this this idea of of this randomness, but yet there's an underlying order within that randomness. Yeah. And being able to tap into that and to express the life that comes out of that experience. Yeah. So Avel's at these different universities and studying in Paris. And you mentioned that he had these ideas or ambitions of being a commercial artist. Then how did he kind of start shifting into some of the subject matter and styles that we kind of know of Avel today, where it seems like a mix of classical, you know, architecture, uh, obelisks, and, you know, Egyptian type um, artwork, you know, there's just a lot of mixed cultural relevance within his work. Um, So I'm just curious as to how he kind of evolved from doing something or how he evolved from having an ambition of something that was more uh, commercial and corporate to something that is more expressive of spirit and self? That's a great question, uh, Papo. I believe that came out of the experience of living and studying in Paris. Mm. One of the things that you find in Avel's work is the influence of people like Odilon Redon, who's a French late 19th century symbolist painter uh, who also worked in pastels. And Avel was inspired by the life of the mind, of the imagination. He became friends with a writer and artist by the name of Jean Cocteau, who was also uh, very close friends with Picasso. Mm -hmm. So being in this milieu of artists who were traversing boundaries, not not staying confined Mm -hmm. conceptually, visually, I think that this spirit of freedom is something that Avel embraced 
and then exuded through his work. Not right away. The seeds were sown in France, and they would later manifest uh, in the 19, late, mid to late 1960s mm-hmm. in his work. So did he end up staying in Paris? Was that where he lived most of his life? Or was he kind of traveling back and forth between Paris and New York? Or did he venture into any other countries at all? Abel lived for about 10 years on and off in Paris. Mm-hmm. He would spend some time in Paris, then he would go to uh, New York, eventually settling in Greenwich Village. First, he lived on Christopher Street and then moved to Perry Street. Um, I don't know if you ever visited his apartment, um, but he transformed this apartment into, I don't know what he, he transformed it into, but it was very eclectic. Mm-hmm. It had Japanese prints. It had works from Indonesia. It had uh, European influences and sculpture and the obelisks and mm-hmm. things of that nature, exquisitely arranged. He was he was really an, a master arranger. And this is something that can be attested to by one of his dear friends, Edward Field. Edward and Neil Derrick, uh, his partner, also lived not too far from where Avel was living. Mm-hmm. And Avel designed part of the living space uh, where uh, Neil and Edward Field, the, the great poet, uh, were living. And so so I, I guess that answers, I think that answers your question. I first met Avel on my first birthday party. <laughs> and he was sitting there. There's a, some raw color footage of my birthday. And I'm, I'm a little toddler. I'm walking by this time. This was like 1957. And yeah. And Avel is sitting there, um, I think, eating some chicken or, you know, on a lawn chair. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a night, and I rem- and there was a little dog running around by a fence, and I'm I'm pinching the dog's nose, his wet snout, you know, through the through the fence, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, that was my first encounter with Avel. Uh, At this time, was he gaining some sort of prominence as an artist himself, or was he more into teaching? Like, I'm curious as to how he started getting more publicly known for his work? Well, Avel started exhibiting with a number of artists like Andy Warhol, among others, in the 1950s. This is before Andy Warhol blew up, when Andy Warhol was doing mostly commercial-type illustrations. Mm -hmm. Andy wasn't the only artist in the group, but he was among a number of artists in these exhibitions that Avel would participate in. So that's when people started really uh, paying attention to Avel. And by the mid to late 1950s, that's when Avel started exhibiting his first one-man show at places like the Sagittarius Gallery, which unfortunately no longer exists. Uh, and so that's when he started getting uh, public attention. Mm-hmm. Again, the kinds of subjects that he was painting at that time were matadors, uh, mm-hmm. were people sitting on benches. These are the kinds of subjects that he would... And, and you could see the influence of artists, uh, French artists uh, in his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vuillard, uh, Bonnard, uh, these are some of the artists who uh, I believe, not in terms of their patterning, but in terms of their quiet, meditative or reflective subjects in the work. Yeah. You know, you, many of the figures, you see there's a kind of stillness in many of these figures. And that would permeate 
many years later, you don't see a whole lot of action and movement in Avel's figures in his work for the most yeah. part. You basically see people relaxing, sleeping. Mm -hmm. I remember in one individual uh, told Avel, he said, I've never seen so many sleeping Arabs in a, <laughs> <laughs> in a painting before. Uh, because he liked to explore figures that were robed. And, you know, this is by the mid 60s. He yeah. started showing figures that were, that had the influences of uh, Islamic cultures that he encountered when he first went to places like Samarkand and Bukhara. Uh, these were Islamic places that were part of the USSR at the time. Mm -hmm. And Avel traveled there in 1961 under the auspices of the U.S. State Department to give slide lectures, to talk about American art and art in general. Mm -hmm. And that's when he was exposed to these other cultures. And as I say, the influence of, of Islamic culture on Avel was really, in a sense, a gateway into exploring the exotic right, mm -hmm. in a different way, not European yeah. now. And really, it was a gateway into exploring the experience of North Africa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of his heroes in art was Eugene Delacroix, who's a French 19th century artist who has a series of journals that were based on his travels to North Africa. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no direct evidence that Avel himself ever traveled to North Africa. I know he had aspirations to, to travel there, uh, in part because of Delacroix. But the experience of the cultures in North Africa, many of which are Islamic, found its way into his depiction of figures. Uh, and one of the interesting things that happened in 1961, when he was lecturing in the Soviet Union, one of the students uh, came to him and said, we've been hearing about the boycotts and freedom riders and things going on in the United States. How does your work relate to the civil rights struggle you know, of your people there. Mm -hmm. And Avel took a moment and he said, well, one of the great things about the United States is that you had the freedom to express the way that you want to express. And as an artist, I want to express myself by the subject matter that I choose. That's one of the freedoms. Yeah. So I don't necessarily have to depict people on a bus or things like that. I'm paraphrasing essentially yeah. what he said. Yeah. And uh, so the person seemed somewhat not completely satisfied with the answer. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that question stayed in his mind. How can I make my work relevant to the experience of what it means to be Black in the United States? Yeah. But the way he was going to do it is not to narrowly define it in terms of the United States. Mm -hmm but to expand it and make it more universal. Yeah. yeah and so black people all over the world. Exactly. Exactly. And so when you see pyramids in his work, when you mm -hmm. see some figures with an Afro mm -hmm. uh, wearing robes, that ties in with the whole Afrocentric impulse that was beginning to take place in the United States. Yeah. So Avel found in his own way, a path to unify the influences, the European, the, the classical European works of ancient Greece and Rome, 
from his studies. And he had also traveled to Italy and other places. So he, he was exposed to what the West had to offer in terms of antiquity, uh, the various eras of art yeah. that existed in Europe. So now he's taking the African influence. He's looking at magazines that has images of people from East Africa. Mm-hmm. He's looking at the patterns, the way that they create patterns on their faces through with paint, uh, scarification, mm-hmm. uh, and the kind of clothes. And he's be- and looking at their African sculpture, their mass. Then he begins to incorporate that into his work. Yeah, that's how Avell was able to create this amalgam. And I had the opportunity in the early '90s to witness him working on a piece. And guess where he worked in his apartment, which, as I say, had Chinese fans and had um, Middle Eastern and North African. He had a molding that came from uh, that had Islamic influence mm-hmm. that he attached to the corners of walls. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was absolutely incredible. It was like walking into the world Wow! in his space. Yeah. And I still have some of those, those artifacts. Uh, and after he passed, uh, rather before he passed, we were having dinner. I know I'm digressing here. I'll come back to the painting, uh, to the work of art. But um, he said to me, listen, you're an artist. We've been to shows together. We traveled to see the work of Jean-Michel Basquiat in his last exhibit in 1988. Uh, we had talked with people like June Kelly, and among other people that Avell knew. We went to photography shows. So he knew, and he had even invested and purchased uh, some of my work, mm-hmm. too. And so uh, he said, when the day comes, I would like you to have and take care of my artistic legacy. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of responsibility, but I would like you to to be the one to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought about it for a second and I said, of course, I will I will do that because I loved him. Yeah. I knew he loved me and, and uh, I wanted to honor his memory. Uh, and so almost every show that I've curated uh, since that time, uh, has featured one of Avell's pieces. Yeah. And one of the things that he wanted in his, that he was not able to achieve in his lifetime, but he hoped that would be done after he passed, was a major retrospective. Mm-hmm. And I was able to uh, achieve that with the help of his good friend, Richard Waller, who is the uh, director of the University of Richmond Museums in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And they had worked together at the Brooklyn Museum. That's when they first got to know each other. So I was honored to be able to work with Richard and Elizabeth Schlater on the retrospective for Avell called Myth and Mirage, the Art of Avell Tonight in 2001. And this took place just before 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. So coming back to the piece in his apartment, so I had the opportunity to see Avell working on a piece that became known as Still Life with Column. Mm-hmm. It's a large pastel piece uh, that shows an African mask, a fragment of Michelangelo's 
portrait of Adam mm -hmm. in the Sistine Chapel. And this, again, it exemplifies this amalgam of different cultures coming together in his work. And he told me at that time, he said, this is a very important piece. Mm -hmm. And it, it truly is. It's a remarkable piece. And yeah. uh, this particular piece and a number of other pieces uh, are currently being represented by Burgess Fine Arts mm -hmm. in New York City. And Bill Burgess is not only a businessman and has this particular collection, but he is also an artist in his own right. So he has the artist sensitivity and uh, he loves Avel's work. And Avel was friends with a number of uh, artists, as I say, uh, including Betty Blayton Taylor, uh, who, by the way, was also an art instructor at Haryu, Haryu Act which is where your grandfather was the initially the project director uh, and then became the executive director in 64. Yeah. And she then later on became the founder of the Children's Art Carnival uh, located in Harlem. Hmm. And I had the opportunity when I was in graduate school at City College uh, to do an internship there. And so that's where she and I connected the first time. And I had her subsequently in uh, two of the art shows that I curated, one at the New York State Museum and up in Saratoga Springs. Wow, that's cool. Also, there was Carl Lundy and Roy Moore. These were individuals who were uh, writers. And Jacob Lawrence, another noted African-American artist, was a friend mm -hmm. of Avell's. Herman Rose, his wife, uh, Elia Braca Rose, who was an actress in uh, radio in, from the 1930s uh, for quite a number of years. Uh, Ilya and Avel were very, very close, very, very close. Mm -hmm. It's a photograph of both of them hanging some work together uh, in Greenwich Village. They were part of a group called the Village Art Gallery. I think that's it. Uh, Arthur Mitchell, mm -hmm. the Dance Theater of Harlem, was a friend of Avel's. Raymond St. Jacques, the actor. Many people might remember him from a film called Cotton Comes to Harlem with Godfrey Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And many others, uh, all friends of uh, of Avell. So he was in the mix, as they say. Yeah. But as the years went on, and and as the AIDS crisis began to develop in the 1980s, uh, Avell started losing quite a number of his friends, and um, he became somewhat despondent. He would still join us at family occasions. You remember seeing Avell at Thanksgivings, mm -hmm. uh, at yeah. your uncle's, and other yeah. places, but his friends were, were leaving. If it wasn't age, and Avel was relatively young, but when he died, he was 72. And so uh, he became somewhat despondent and also reclusive, you know, yeah. didn't go out as much. Before he would go out to the opera, he used to like to, to dance every once in a while, mm -hmm. uh, uh, whatever the, the latest dances were. If you were to look at his playlist, of uh, some of the music that he would listen to. Uh, he was listening to people like Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, Carol King, Tapestry, It's Too Late Baby, The Jackson Five, Never Can't Say Goodbye, Buddy Miles, Them Changes, The Rolling Stones, Lobo, Janis Joplin, uh, Joe Cocker. I mean, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. You know, he was very much in tune with that. And also a group that he particularly had an interest in was called The Fifth Dimension. <laughs> right, right. Did he ever get to collaborate with Renee on anything that he did 
uh, whether it was, you know, kind of blending music and art or anything, were they able to do any collaborations at all or no. with any of his siblings, really? No, he, he never did. Uh, that would have been fantastic uh, if he had done the album cover for The Fifth Dimension or something yeah. of that nature. <laughs> but no, they didn't. Although Edgar uh, or Rene and Avel were, were very close. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see photographs of them together in 1949 in London. Mm -hmm. This is when Rene was with the Delta Rhythm Boys. You can see photographs of them in Avel's apartment, along with your uncle and his wife, mm -hmm. uh, back in the 90s, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and also meeting with them in Paris. So, yeah, they were um, remained close, but they never officially worked together, uh, to, my, to my recollection. And when was Avel's, I guess, heyday? Like like his like peak period of producing art was it the sixties or did it kind of trickle into the seventies at all? So Abel's peak, as you might say, really extended between the seventies and the eighties. Okay, that would be the period of time where he was working on what was known as his Mirage series. Mm -hmm. The Mirage series had a series of bands, overlapping bands. Mm -hmm. uh, often in gouache, that was a medium that he he chose to work in, which he felt very comfortable in. He initially Gua started is... in oil painting. It's a water-based medium, uh, similar to tempera. Okay. And of course, watercolor. I mean, he mm -hmm. was a master watercolorist. That's one of the things that your grandfather, uh, my father Ty, uh, would often remark. It's just the incredible way that he used watercolor. Wow. Uh, the way that he was able to evoke light in space, air, atmosphere. It takes a great deal of skill to be able to master it the way that he did. Mm -hmm. And also with gouache, uh, he would use a rule so that he create these horizon lines where you had these overlapping planes yeah. so that you could see perhaps a pyramid in the distance and you would going toward that pyramid, but you never quite get there because the planes shift. It's a mirage. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. But it's one that he felt that that was important to always to have a goal, to have an ideal. And that pyramid for him was, he said, like the Mount Savitois in Provence for artists like Cezanne, mm -hmm. the 19th century post-impressionist artist. Wow, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was teaching at the University of Pittsburgh in Johnstown that Avil uh, came to stay with us. Because mm -hmm. I had a 10-year retrospective for Avel at the college. Yeah. And you were very little at the time. <laughs> Actually, about two or three. And Avel stayed with us. And one of the things that he showed me was the way in which he could take a stick, went outside and got a twig, mm -hmm. and dipped it in ink, mm -hmm. and then started to draw with the stick and in ink. And he said, you don't have as much control as if you're working with a pen or a pencil, piece of graphite. Mm -hmm. But what it allows you to do is to see that in those variations, there are new possibilities. Wow. And so the idea of the subconscious coming mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. is something that he valued. That's Somebody really cool. might look at something as being a, a mistake or an accident, but the possibilities that can be revealed out of that is like a form of redemption. Yeah. It's like a person or an artist or a musician 
and they play a wrong note or wrong chord. But that wrong chord or note can become right by the next note or chord that you play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. So I guess I'm curious as to what the legacy can evolve into for Avell. I mean, you mentioned that he kind of charged you with the uh, monumental responsibility of making sure that, you know, his work, his story, his importance continues to touch future generations. Uh, so where do you see the legacy of Avell heading? Well, there are a number of venues that have collected the work of Avell, places like the uh, Leslie Lohman Gallery of Gay and Lesbian Art. I think they might have changed their name, though, now that I think about it. I think it's the Lohman Gallery, the Leslie Lohman Gallery. The Petrucci Family Foundation, which has collected works of African-American artists with the advice and input of people like Beresford Booth. Uh, and there are a number of places like the Metropolitan Museum of Art that have Avell's work in their collection, in their holdings, the Fleming Museum. Um, the list goes on. And I think that with the use of podcasts like this and technology that uh, it's going to be able to, we're going to be able to reach more people. Avell has a website, aveldenight.net, that I invite all people to go visit, check out. And what are some of your thoughts about Avell? I honestly don't have that many uh, memories mm -hmm. about Avell. Um, I know that he would come to some family functions like Thanksgivings and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. When he was there, I would notice how you and him would really talk and connect a lot, mm -hmm. um, assumedly talking about art. Um, mm -hmm. And it always seemed like his artwork was more important and of a greater value than what it seems the public narrative is. It doesn't seem like anybody knows about Avell. doesn't seem like anybody, you know, is wanting to know about Avell. And so it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why whenever we did the Fifth Dimension podcast, we mentioned Renee DeKnight, that it made me think about, you know, well, what about discussing Avell? You know, we mentioned him in that podcast. You know, he is of somebody who the world needs to know. And so, yeah, I think that there's an opportunity for his legacy to become part of the greater conversation in black American visual artists, uh, or I should say of black American visual artists. There's no question about that, Papo. Avell is definitely unsung. And while people acknowledge the mastery of his craftsmanship, uh, you're right, the market uh, has not completely become aware of, of his talent. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason, I've talked to several people about this, and one of the reasons uh, is because his work as a whole cannot fit into a particular box. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can't look at his work. He, he doesn't do just genre art, people just doing everyday things or sitting on a bench or what have you. He also has wing figures. He has angels. He has uh, Pegasus, uh, horses. Uh, he has 
mysterious light and orbs of light emanating from hands like um, you know like a reiki master or something yeah he his work defies easy categorization and i think that makes it difficult for those who might otherwise want to show his work to figure out how to market it how what kind of niche does he fit into that we can then uh promote mm-hmm. And and so I think that's been one of the uh, the issues related to uh, Avell and getting his his name out there uh, as much as it deserves to be. I think it's going to eventually happen. I think there have been a lot of changes and walls coming down, and uh, but it's going to simply take a concerted effort to make sure that his name is in the mix uh, for a variety of different international exhibits that are going on. I think it may also require uh, a grant and some independent work, mm-hmm. uh, the production of a film, mm-hmm. a book, not just about Avel's life, but how Avel's life is connected to a broader context of the African diaspora, mm-hmm. of the American experience in general. And I think that that is uh, timely and I think important. 